This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. This is episode 15, kind of 15 episodes. It's pretty amazing. And uh, I'm just very excited for our panel that we have today to discuss a, a very interesting topic that could either go a half hour or less or for four hours. But uh, <laughs> with that, I'd like to introduce our panel for today, starting with Mr. Reliable, Stephen Keel. Not, not only every week, but also shows up at 6.59, or no, five minutes early, excuse me. But Stephen from Marquitos Capital, oh. always great to have you. Thankfully, I'm on the East Coast, so my time's a little bit different here, but uh, <laughs> uh, still great to, uh, great to join us. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Stephen. We also have joining us at The Good Prick on Twitter. Remember, we're still trying to get his Twitter account up, so please help us in that regard. We got Kevin Shea, full-time microcap investor. What's up, Kevin? How's it going? Good. Great to be back. <laughs> Great to have you. And uh, also joining us after a, a few weeks away, we're excited to have him back. It's Kelvin Sito from Slingshot Capital. Kelvin, tell us, what time is it there? You know, we're talking about punctuality. You know, it's, it's in the middle of the night in Singapore, right? Um, it's 10 p.m. as well. Okay, awake. not too late. We have a okay. nightlife over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we, were doing the epi- when we were doing the recordings a little later in the afternoon, that's when it was in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah, you remember yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, today's topic, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded topic. You know, uh, really what, what, we wanna, what we're talking about today is what sectors and industries are uniquely positioned to have high TAM, that's total addressable market, and ability to grow revenues, GPM and OPM faster with increasing cash flows and vice versa and why. So in a nutshell, what we really want to kind of try and cover today is a discussion on sectors and industries that we think are burgeoning and suffering and, and why. And so with that, uh, who wants to take the first stab? You know, I, I, I'm, you know, who, who wants to go? Steven, you might as well, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, to start off, the one thing you want to look at, right, uh, for this is, look, we're in a very unique environment and we don't know how long this uncertainty Forget about the stock market itself, but the economy as a whole. We don't know how long this will last. So I think we need to differentiate between some of the short-term things that are are really benefiting industries and companies that are really benefiting right now during this uncertainty and those that actually have the ability to sustain that after the fact. And so an obvious one that you can think of is, well, some of the online purchasing, whether it's, you know, one, you have the kind of retail as a whole, more like apparel and things like that, which clearly are having some trouble, those who who don't have the online presence. But then, you know, on the left side, even consumer staples, uh, you know, whether it's something like an Amazon or Walmart or a Kroger, uh, Costco, things like this, um, you know, it's, it's worthwhile to look at those who have an online presence that will continue to grow or have the ability to expand and grow and find new areas over the long term versus those who uh, might have a short term advantage, but will go back to some sort of normalization afterwards. Uh, and then, you know, so you have the industries there, but then you also look at specific 
companies in it. And Costco is a good example. Clearly, they're not the, they don't have the online presence uh, that some of these other companies uh, do, but they've seem to have benefited, right, during this time period. And uh, the question is, are, will they continue uh, to have elevated demand for the products once we get back into a, a more normalized, uh, a more normalized uh, economy? I would even I would even argue Costco's online presence has gotten better. I mean, I, I know from my from just personal experience. I mean, we've ordered, you know, especially when the pandemic first hit, you know, not just, you know, for the Clorox wipes and all that stuff like you're looking for everything, you know, yeah. and, and and because if they don't have it in store, you just order it online or you can see what stores have it and whatnot. So, you know, even so within those example. consumer. Yeah. Even within yeah. those consumer staples, it's building that online presence out even more. Right. And who will they be crowding out? Right. So if they can expand their online presence and capabilities and people start to think about, you know, look, two years ago, people generally one year ago, you know, you didn't go to Costco online, you go in person and you deal with all of that. And so here's a great example of a specific company that is using this uncertainty and crisis to thrive, you know, to really uh, take advantage of these opportunities. And so when we get back to a normalization, they're going to be better off than they otherwise would have been. And I think that's what we want to think about and talk about here uh, on, on today's show. And that's what's exciting as investors to look at, because, you know, we're looking at things where we might have a little bit of a different view than the stock market it, itself may have. Absolutely. Kevin, you want to jump in? Not, not really quite sure I agree. <clears throat> I understand, but I don't know if I agree. Um, what I'm, and again, I go back to this whole thing that we started on, I think it was session one, where, and, and uh, Steve made note of it, is uncertainty. And um, I think the thing that was mentioned back then was that there's going to be a COVID premium and a COVID discount. And I still agree with that. And I do agree with, uh, with Stephen with regard to, we don't know whether this is going to be short-lived, how long it's going to last, et cetera, et cetera, with regard to uh, people's sentiment with regard to either moving online or going back to a store, I think when you get right down to it, people are still social animals. Um, they want to be out, they want to go out, they want to be able to exchange with others. Um, and I don't think they want to be hiding in their homes doing online buying all the time. Um, although I think it's appropriate, I just don't know whether or not um, the quote unquote new normal, I don't know whether the new, I don't know what the new normal is, it hasn't played out yet. Um, but I think what you get into is, is that you do get into, um, People want to go back to their general selves, you know, that they've experienced over the last 50, 50 years. I don't think that's going to change much. Um, so, you know, the, the other thing I've been noticing also, just on the, on the personal level, is people have been accepting this whole idea of putting a mask on. I mean, it's, it's not even a question anymore. You put a mask on, you're going to buy some stuff, okay? Um, and I think that's become normalized in itself. And people saying, instead of being all pissed off about putting the mask on, people are now saying, oh, okay, you're going in. And it's become pretty normal, okay? People want to go out. People want to exchange with people. And they want to be able to enjoy the benefits of, of, of social exchange. So I think that's one thing, you know, when you get right down to it, is, is that the, the, the pandemic... Um, to me, is just another bump in the road, and, and along you know the the, the far you know, the the long the long road of investing. I'll go back into sit down and say you know you ask the question what's the what are the things that one looks for from an investor perspective? You know, with regard to total available markets and all, and what grows and what's big and what's going to be the best. Um, 
You know, the one thing that I came down to is that the number that I hit, and I would sit down and say, you know, Kelvin might very well notice this as well, but I would sit down and say, first of all, be global, okay? You have to be global. Uh, if you really want to get a big total of you know, uh, TAM and you want to have an opportunity to get really, really big, really, really fast, I think global is a fairly definitive uh, first step. Um, if you only have a selected market, you know, the, uh, the United States or the, the Corn Belt of the United States or something that's very isolated, I don't think you're going to have a very uh, robust opportunity of being able to uh, uh, sell into a, a very, very high TAM. So I think that's number one. Okay. And then if you look at global from my perspective and you start looking at what industries are global and what can be global, um, of course, there are many, many of these very, very large companies that we are dealing with right now who have established a huge international environment. But the, it's kind of funny. There's one thing I just came across just recently, um, and it was based upon some of the presentations that were made at the Microcap Club. I'll just give you one example. KidVid, okay? Children's videos, okay? Um, children's videos are made everywhere, okay? They're made in China. They're made in India. They're made in, in Japan. Um, and what they've done is that they've globalized them by not having a lot of um, a lot of voicing going on, a lot of voiceover. So it's kind of a, to me, it's kind of interesting is that kids are kids are everywhere, and kids buy stuff pretty much, you know, accordingly. So people who are engaged in uh, international kid vid might very well be, you know, something that I'm looking. I just again, it's, I just mentioned it because it's basically something that I just came across. Um, but again, you know, so many of the opportunities for bio, uh, bio, biologics, uh, big pharma, um, obviously those things are going to be out there in, in, uh, in um, uh, that environment globally. And medical devices the same way. Um, I think that you can start getting down. So I can start listing a number of different things that I think that are uh, interesting to a microcap investor. <clears throat> you know, when you start to sit down and engage it against, I'm only giving you one uh, criteria, and I'm sure that there's going to be many, many more. Um, so I'll, I'll just turn it over to uh, to Calvin and see what, he's, see what he has to say. Uh, yep. So I think those are interesting points from Stephen and Kevin. Um, the way I look at it is that um, before, I guess, we jump into the industries, right? We first have to look at, you know, what actually causes um, certain industries to have um, high total, uh, total addressable markets, right? And I feel that even if today um, when there are a lot of uncertainty, but I always ask myself today, it goes back to the question, right? Um, what are the products and services that deliver value to the customers, right? And I think value is very uh, different for a lot of people. Like, I mean, back then in, in maybe, I guess in America, um, there are a lot of department stores that were doing tremendously well. But then you realize that uh, Amazon came up with a better offering, um, the one day prime kind of delivery, a better way to purchase stuff on um, e-commerce websites. So I, I always ask myself this question, right? Like what are, what is the value that has been constantly been changed and is changing even right now? So um, like, for example, right? If you ask me this question, right? There's this software company that, um, that is called uh, CrowdStrike, right? I mean, you look at the cybersecurity um, industry is actually growing uh, quite rapidly. Um, like if you are using McAfee, right? Um, There's an antivirus uh, software. When you try to load up the website, try to load up the apps, right? It kind of like hangs your computer and you have to wait up like one minute to for it to even load before you start using. But CrowdStrike is a lightweight uh, app that runs in the background. So that actually delivers more value and it's a cloud native um, uh, process, right? So it's actually much better. So at the end of the day, I think um, um, there's two ways to look at it, but I think the direction that I'm looking at it uh, from 
are companies that actually eliminate constraint, right? Constraint meaning like the load up times or can help me eliminate costs as well or boost my revenue or boost my productivity. As long as you have a business that is able to eliminate constraint, eliminate costs, boost your revenue or increase your productivity, I believe they will still continue to enjoy a high total addressable markets. Maybe just a maybe just an example here, right? Um, I think there are still a lot of businesses that still really haven't gotten used um to like CRMs as well, like customer relationship relationship uh, management softwares. Um, but I also realized that you see, uh, whenever I buy into an industry that 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 I want to um, really uh, bet big on, right? Like have a big position on. I believe that it has to serve a very, very wide uh, industry, right? Like um, one of it is a high, um, huge consumer markets. Uh, software is she one of it, right? Like if you ask me, would I want to buy a yacht company, uh, a golf company? Um, actually, my answer would be obviously no, because the address market is really, really small. But I start to see that consumers' habits are really changed, right? Like in the past, if you look at uh, a lot of um, office, I think we still remember the days where you go to server room and there's a, like a lot of wires, a lot of dials, and there's a room that you never ever want to go to. But today, you know, we don't have any more servers because it's all stored in like AWS. It's all stored in a lot of um, Azure or Google Cloud. So from that angle, I'm actually starting to see that actually we are still at the age of how computing is being changed, um, um, computing uh, services being delivered. So one of the industry that I think will have a very huge time going forward is uh, software. That's number one. But I also believe that um, what has changed uh, from my point of view, especially in Singapore, where I started to see a lot of uh, retail shops being closed down. Uh, and, and previously, it used to be the idea that, hey, you know, if you own a prime spot in a prime shopping mall in Singapore, um, your sales tend to do really, really well. But I think now it's starting to prove uh, one point is that, you know, the, uh, you know, the strength doesn't lie with the brand anymore, but it lies with the consumer marketplace like Amazon, um, in, in Singapore case, you know, Shopee and Lazada, these are the ones that I believe would have greater um, uh, power. I think the power has shifted to platforms instead of the brand owners as well, because they are the ones that bring traffic. So I guess these are some of my quick thoughts on, on the topic. Yeah, you know, that that comment, uh, you, you referenced to Shopee. And, you know, I think when you think about a platform, right, uh, whether it's Shopify in the US or Shopify, Etsy, something like that, People generally are looking for more personalization. I think that will continue and increase yep. going forward. And so, you know, to, to control that platform helps to eliminate some of the competition because ultimately when you have an industry with a large a total addressable market, that, that encourages competition. And as investors, we actually want a company that generally is a monopoly or duopoly uh, or something like that. And so, what you can find then is in some of these platforms, they just crowd out the competition, right? Yeah. Uh, once, once you have, um, you know, all of that connectivity with it. And so, you know, forget about stock prices related to these companies, but when you think about long-term success, I think you really want a, a leader uh, in, in a, you know, one of the platforms that is a leader or at least one of the one or two, because sometimes there's, the industry can support a couple here. Uh, that's what I would look at. Shopee is a good example here. Obviously, Amazon in some ways, I mean, a Amazon sells itself, but they also have uh, a platform with the third-party sellers. Shopify does it, um, Etsy to a less degree, lesser degree as well. Uh, that's what I would be looking at as increasing going forward. And then obviously these are online sellers, which you know, I think this has reset, this time period has reset 
uh, interest in buying more online for some, it's increased the TAM because you have some people who were really not generally online shoppers before who, uh, who, who will be more in the future. I'm talking about, you know, people in smaller cities, some older people, things like that. You know, I, yeah. I would, I would, oh, sorry. Cal, Cal, yeah, I wanted, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Stephen, I think that's a, an excellent point over there. And I think as you're um, speaking, you know, I, I start to have this realization, right? Like um, how do we actually, I mean, where do we start to hunt, right? Like I start to realize that when you, when we start to see certain consumer behaviors start to change the way we act, the way we interact, start to change, you know, um, from the traditional uh, forms, right? Um, and th there's this book called The Value Migration, right? Um, value migrated from a newspaper to Facebook because there's a better way of um, interaction. And also, um, um, in this case, Zoom actually took over um, WebEx and a lot of um, other communication, uh, communication tools, right? So I think one of the way whereby, you know, we, we see sectors and industries that are uniquely positioned, I feel that is where they are ripe for uh, disruption. Uh, one of the areas as well, of, of course, like I heard a lot about Square, I heard a lot about a cash app. I have not really personally, um, you know, used the app before, but I think it's really highly disruptive. So again, I think it goes back to the idea about, you know, um, there's this term that, that I heard before, but I do not know whether it's relevant to this topic. It's called the tectonic shifts, right? Like what are the shifts that's happening right now in the industries, right? The way how people consume, the way people watch movies as well, right? We, sometimes maybe we do not want to go to cinemas because we think that Netflix is a better option for some people. I'm not sure, right? And um, so when I start to see huge changes occurring in the, in the industry, um, that's usually a good thing, right? Like electric cars. But I think the second question is where, um, who is going to be positioned, well positioned to win? Because when... When a whole value is being migrated to the new industry, uh, there's a huge addressable market. Everyone wants a pie of it, but how do you dominate and how do you win, right? So I guess that's the next question that I'll be thinking about. Let me let, let me just jump in on also. Um, I agree, hundred percent with Stephen with regard to the idea of platforms. <clears throat> I think strategically, platforms have become the standard bearer for future success. Um, anybody who's moving from an isolation cell to a platform cell, I think is gonna have a significant benefit uh, in, in regard to anything, anything in the competition. Um, I, think that, I think the same thing is true. You know, I look over and sit down and say, a, you know, a platform provides the means of being able to have anybody sell content. Um, Shopify or and, and Amazon, of course, is the is the uh, is the 500 pound gorilla. But uh, I think that that is a strategic direction that could be built, that can be used to build the company. You know, with regard to how big it can be built, you know, from a total available market, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, similarly, I would sit down and say the the, the strategies that uh, companies that implement strategies that uh, follow trends. And I think that uh, a platform is a trend. There, there are other ones that are going on as well. And I've been saying this for a while. Um, what I see is, is that companies who move to um, systems rather than selling, let's call it just parts. Um, companies who move to integration where they are assembling and putting together um, items that are now packaged into a system are gonna have a benefit. Well, one company that I just listened to recently uh, is called Lightpath, uh, L-P-T-H, which I do not own. Um, I listened to the to the uh, to the new CEO, and what I came to the conclusion with was was that the guy basically recognized that although the company makes great components, 
his new strategy is going to basically be being able to sell systems and subsystems. He's moving up the value chain. Uh, so to some extent, when you look at, at future opportunities, I think there are substantial uh, existential movements that are going on in the, in the broader markets that one has to basically sit down and see whether or not my current strategy is consistent with the movement to these new strategies. And I think Calvin said the same thing when he's talking about value migration. I think, his, I think his argument is basically along the same way. He's looking for new opportunities to sit down and see how can I, how, how are things changing strategically? <clears throat> so um, again, if you can identify early on that you are on a new strategy or be the owner of the new strategy. I don't know who owns platforms, but it probably is Amazon. Um, but if you can, if you can launch onto a, a, a new change, a change in the, in the overall marketplace, I think that's gonna give you a benefit. Now, again, if you, if you create a great strategy with a great platform, but your market's small, again, I'm talking about you know, total available markets and things of that sort, how big can you get? I, again, you have, to, you have to kind of consider that entire thing when you're doing your due diligence. Uh, great, great opportunity, great market, great strategy, small, small market. Um, where does that put you? you know? Well, so, if you're a monopoly, you know, to that, I mean, that's an excellent point that if you're a niche and the market's so small that it's not going to invite real competition, then you know, as an investor, that, that could be a good place to be. For the business itself, obviously, there's a, there's a cap to, to what they can do. But I, I do like that idea as an investor to look at, you know, you have, you, you want to have massive TAM, right, in the early stages, or relatively a small amount of total addressable market, but one company that's just dominating it and does not appear to be, you know, to, to, to be able to give it up in the near future. That could be a, an attractive investment as a stock market investor as well. Yeah, but being able to identify that early... <laughs> Being, being, I'm going yeah. to be the monopoly in this business. I don't think early. Yeah, I, I think you got to take out the word early there. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. you become the monopoly because you're so unique and nobody else is, you know, it's, I'm not going to share the market with you, you know, things of that type. Um, and, you know, as I said, it, it's kind of funny. There's a, there's a sentiment out there. I'd rather be first than second. In some cases, I'd rather be second than first. Um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Jewel, for example, uh, right now. I'm not, I'm not investing in Jewel. I'm just looking at them. They were first in the vaping business. They completely screwed it up, okay, by being arrogant as all hell. They could have monopolized it for sure, okay, but now they're in a situation where they spent a ton of money, they did everything right, and they did everything badly. And anybody who comes in as a second, okay, you thought that that jewel could be monopoly on the um, on the vaping business, and now it's wide open. So. Um, I think what you get into it is that uh, it's nice to be first, but sometimes being first, you end up with the arrows in the back. Yeah, but you need, I mean, in a situation like that, I think you need some sort of patent advantage or you need to be, you know, you're collecting tolls on that bridge going into Canada or something like that. Uh, and again, the total addressable market, relatively small, but, you know, you have, it's not, you have some sort of moat or protective barrier around the, the business that is more than just brand name. You know, it's something something like a patent advantage or or something else, and and again, yeah. that expires at some point also. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Jewel, I mean, I think they had a massive moat to begin with, and I'm as I've written about this. I think moats are indefensible in in the long run, and you can defend it by patents. You can defend it by being very very good, but you can't defend it about you can't defend it by being stupid, and I think that's what the Jewel did, and it's quite <laughs> apparent that uh, they they lost their way 
because of poor management and poor decision makings and you know getting up getting up uh, too tight against the uh, the uh, the regulatory people you know the federal the feds the fed doing the regulatory activities and things of that type so i think i think that's kind of interesting um you know from the standpoint of monopoly and boats and things of that type but again i'm a i guess i'm a not an anti-moat guy but i i think that moats are are very very difficult particularly if it's technology driven and i do agree with one thing that was mentioned a while ago is that i think that there is quite a bit of opportunity to develop to develop moats through culture and corporate culture that was explained uh, that was discussed um four or five sessions ago as well so yeah so it'll be nice to know that it'll be nice to know who the monopoly is going to be from the very beginning Oh, wouldn't that be just uh, the dream for all of us, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to, oh, sorry, I'd like to add a very quick uh, example. I think uh, what Stephen and Kevin had um, in, in the discussion was very interesting because uh, previously I was owning this company called PaySign. Um, some of you guys may be quite aware of that. So, of course, you look at the plasma industry, it's, it's small, right? And um, But it's growing um, quite steadily for 10% kind of like Kager for the last um, decade or so, right? So... Um, what I think that we can make a kind of maybe a, a, a differentiating point here is that, you know, it can be a small industry, but it's growing at 5-10%. It will not attract any competitors. That's good. And, and, and most of the time, these industries are, um, you know, it's, it's managed by one player and that player has absolute monopoly. And when you have a monopoly, you'll be complacent, right? So Wirecard became complacent. Uh, PaySign came into the business, um, took a lot of business away from from Wirecard. And I think um, the idea where culture is a mode, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, to, to be really honest, I don't really see any huge difference between pay science solution with a versus Wirecard solution in the plasma processing um, environment, but they just had better customer service. You know, when you are in such, when you are just going against a huge and complacent uh, player, you can just win by customer service. And at the end of the day, why are they complacent? Because Wirecard has so many businesses, right? And, and that Plasma business is just a small portion of their of their overall growth revenue. So I think uh, when we want to choose businesses um, to, to invest in, there are small industries, right? We got to look at who's the leader and whether they're complacent. But if this is their main business, right? It's going to be their bread and butter. Of course, they're going to compete quite aggressively. Then I think with a second player coming in, then that, that may not move the needle and and i think the dominant player will still continue to dominate yeah i i uh let me throw out a question i'd be interested from from each of you uh in the idea of trying to find a 101 bagger that's that's what i'm gonna patent not a 100 bagger since since john or uh, uh chris mayer's got that 101 bagger and a thousand's too much i mean like you know let's be reasonable be happy with 101 six um, minute ads yes <laughs> if it, people who recognize that uh, uh that's what we're going for here but here's the question what is a company public or private that has what is your opinion the largest total addressable market they may not be taking advantage of it right now but give me a company a company that has the largest total addressable market well, the largest total addressable markets are companies who are, are uh, already very well established. I mean, cigarette companies, automobile companies, um, products that actually are distributed broadly and widely and, um, I don't know, ubiquitous in, in, across societies. And that's first, the first thing that comes to mind. 
Um, I don't know if that answered the question or not, but uh, you know, you know for, what, well, I've got it. I've got the company, so I, I I'm sure I'm right, but I'll give it to Kelvin. Oh uh, well, um, it's a very good question. It, it caused me to think quite a little bit as well. Um, <coughs> so in my mind, there's there's two things, right? One is that your B two B business is that a big addressable market, or is it a B two C? Um, I, I don't have any research to back it, but I still think that the B2C business still remains one of the largest. And to the point, I think early on, we talk about platforms as well. I think that the unique thing about platforms is that once you dominate into one category and for you to expand to another category, another vertical, it's relatively easy. And I've seen Amazon done, I've seen um, Alibaba done it as well. Um, so I, you know, there's a, there's a reason today, and I'm still, a very, I, I have a big position in C Group. I, I do think that, um, the Southeast Asia is still going to be a very, very big market. And a lot of that, a lot of them are still not using uh, internet. So there's a lot of value migration from uh, like offline to online. But yes, I want to know the company. <laughs> Bobby, you want, to, you want to take a crack? You know, the first thing that came to my mind was um, just from an industry perspective, not necessarily an individual company, but just, you know, gaming. I just think gaming as a whole sector is in the early innings, you know, uh, as, as there's new games, as, as there's more electronics coming online that allow you to game in any way, shape and form. And, you know, the creativity out there for new games and, you know, and, and I'm, and within gaming, I'm including sports betting too, you know, just being able to do all of that right there from the palm of your hand. I mean, it just, and, and also really it hits on Kevin's main point that he said at the, at the beginning of this conversation is that it has the ability to be global. I mean, it's already global, but to really continue to expand globally, especially as some of these fiber optic net, networks are getting better in, in some areas that maybe the internet connectivity wasn't as great. So that's, right. that, was, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, let me, let jump, me, in and, let me jump in and, and, and uh, try to see if I can connect pieces. Um, Given what Bobby was saying, is uh, there's three or four pieces that run through my mind. One is that currently the um, the gaming business, the, the the Las Vegas business, if you want, the Macau business, of course, are indeed suffering along with all hospitality and the like. And it 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 um, it does, I think, connect to Stephen's early opinion about online activities might very well become um, an outshoot of the problems that have been encountered. In hospitality, so I can link those things together with onlining and things of that type. But you know, again, um, you asked the question of what what uh, companies are, are suffering. Um, of course, hospitality, restaurants, I and mean, those are the easy ones that uh, that are that are uh, you know just sticking right in the middle of the face. Um, will Las Vegas change? To me, people want to go to Las Vegas. You know, people want to go to Macau. So again, I'm not quite sure whether or not this is a this is along the lines of what Stephen is thinking about, but you know, it's kind of one of those things that's online now. But when planes are running again, what we got? What, what are they going to see online? Well, online gaming in an airport? You know, well, I was thinking more towards you know the the idea of not just being able to go global online, but also the combination of a platform, you know, with gaming, it's, I feel like it's uniquely positioned where you can get some of these companies out there that now, you know, whether it's through acquisition or, you know, they build up their own platform themselves, where now they have aspects of they're fully vertical across all the different gaming 
things that are out there, for lack of a better right. term. All great let me, comments. Let me take a, me... Let me take a stretch okay. and then give it back to Stephen. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> so the, the question that you're asking is, is kind of simple, Bobby. It's one of those things where, where let's let's just stretch it a little bit. Um, is MGM or is you know are one of the big you know uh, Las Vegas companies or whomever are they currently um, investigating or are they currently developing any sort of platform? Use that phrase again which will permit them to become more global, okay? Minimize the walk-ins, maximize, maximize the, uh, the, the, gains, the, the gains because of losses that other people have. So do you think that there, these people are actually thinking along these lines or are they just waiting for people to walk back in the door? And I'll, now I'll see, I'll, I'll see back to Stephen. Go ahead and oh, let him tell us. I have a good the, comment uh, to that too, is. Kevin. Dang. What? All right. Let, let's let Stephen. Let's let Stephen drop drop. No, I just wanted to poke. I'm I'm a great comments all, but I'm going to poke a hole in each one of them here. So awesome. Good. First of all, first of all, Kevin, have you ever bought anything off Shopee? Me? I don't even know what Shopee is. Kevin. Exactly. Okay. I don't know this stupid stuff. So Shopee is a subsidiary from C Limited. It's a it's a an Asian uh, platform based, you know, it's a couple different things, but Shopee is kind of the Amazon so in some ways uh, in Asia. So 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 Kevin is not part of the TAM of C limited right now. Kelvin, you ever smoked a jewel? Sorry? Have you ever smoked a jewel? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> no, okay. So Kelvin is not part of the TAM, right? Of, of uh, kind of, it's like say tobacco use, whether electronic or otherwise. Um, so you didn't ask me. I'm coming. <laughs> oh, okay. Bobby, have you ever, have you ever done online gaming? Well, are you talking about video games or placing a bet online? See, I was, when I meant bet. gaming, when I meant gaming, I meant literally video games. Yeah, the gambling. Whole, the whole, yeah, yeah. Forget gam about gambling because, you know, I'm sure we've all <laughs> at least discussed that. We're all part of the TAM probably. Wait, does online, does online poker count? Uh, but let's go back to, uh, yeah, if online poker, I think counts. So you're, you're kind of part of that, right? But uh, what was what were some of the other things we get? You know, Kelvin with related. I mean, I think C is a good example because it is a platform here, but there's still aspects of it that do not cover you know each of us. Maybe whether it's geographic, whether it's kind of interest. I, my guess is Kevin probably does not kind of play online games through the the C platform um, and things like that. My point though is then when you look at an industry that has the largest TAM, you have to touch every aspect, and I guarantee every one of us and everyone listening here in some way has done a financial transaction that Stripe has affected. And so my, my answer here is Stripe uh, is, it probably has the largest TAM out of any public or private company right now. And you know, 20 years ago, it was like a MasterCard, a Visa or something like that. But Stripe is so international um, and whether they're approaching you know, those, those types of companies or not, uh, they will surpass at some point because they potentially could have their hand in every transaction that almost everyone on earth could have daily interaction, unknown to them, of course, but daily interaction with Stripe. So I'm a value investor, but I'll tell you when Stripe goes public, I'm going to buy some shares and I'm never going to sell them. I'll tell you, you know, Stephen, that was my second choice of your question was, uh, it was, it was FinTech financial services in, in general, because you know, you think about Tam and you think about, all right, how many potential people does this actually hit? You know, when you, you, 
I, I would argue that almost, you know, a good amount of uh, everybody in the world has gone to a bank, has a bank account. What's a, what's a bank? You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> or you, does it under a mattress? Yeah. Kevin's, Kevin's got all his cash under the mattress, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it. You know, 37 cents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... um. Yeah, sorry, Kelvin. Actually, Stephen, yeah, I, I think I think you you hit a bullseye, right? Um, Stripe is something I'm very excited about. Um, yesterday I was speaking to a, a friend of mine who was in Stripe as well. It's very exciting. I think, um, definitely, you know, within a few years there's IPO, and also I think uh, to Stephen's point, right? Like, um, actually, you look at a a, a similar company called Adyen, right? It's also a payment processing uh, company, right? You look at the way it's being valued, right? And look at the growth rates, right? It seems like you know, you're kind of like projecting sky high valuations, but obviously that there are reasons for, for that, right? Because um, what they do could be international, that's number one. And number two as well, right? The way they earn their fees is actually a cut of every transaction. And the way I look at it is that if inflation is going to happen, if money supply is going to increase, right? They are just like a natural hedge um, against the, you know, money uh, deflation or inflation or whatever you call it, right? So I feel that being part of the financial system is, is going to be incredibly important. And I think, I, I absolutely agree. That's something that, you know, is, is very good. And I think Square as well, um, uh, people transfer money, um, it kind of works the same way. So FinTech definitely is going to be a game changer, I think, in the next few years. Kevin, did you see the news this morning from Square? They just bought, I think, $50 million worth of, uh, of I think it was Bitcoin, right? Really? Wow. Yeah, wow. I heard that. Yeah. Okay. You know, the interesting thing about it is, Stephen, I think that one of the words that comes to my mind is hidden. And although I'm not choosing to participate in a particular market, I am being forced to be a participant in the market through these hidden exchanges. Uh, so to some extent, you know, while I will be a part of that TAM ultimately, because I, and I don't know it, okay. Um, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating study. I think when you look at it, you know, more strategically is you're gonna be a participant and you don't even know that you want it and you can't opt out. And so it's it's kind of, I like that, I like that idea. Well, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. It's well, a lot of competition too, though. I mean, that's that's the thing to consider, right? I mean, you have obviously global uh, potential, gl global TAM potential could touch everyone in every country. Um, and, uh, you know, but again, you know, you your competition is, square on one end, traditional banks on the other end, et cetera, everything in between. And even if you're in a small village, you know, in, in Africa, uh, you're, you may be paying with cash or something like that. Well, the shop owner who's doing the transaction might have, or will likely have kind of electronic things going behind the scenes that might, might be affected. And so when you have that massive, massive uh, uh, potential competition, that's when you have to be careful but look, I, I don't know if you guys have followed these Stripe guys, but it's it's some they're 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 amazing, and you know if look if you would have bought and, and because the market's so big, they don't even need to dominate it, <laughs> right? It's one of those where you can have three, four, five, six different uh, potential leaders, and then you've got different regionalizations and national, you know, things like that. Uh, but look, what's one of the best investments, safest investments over the last 20? 20, 30 years or so, it's a company like a MasterCard or a Visa or, or something like that. Uh, and, and I think Stripe is the next generation of that, quite frankly. One of, the, one of the other markets or areas of interest that I think has broad appeal 
<clears throat> global, global reach and things of that type has to do with the developing activity of food safety. Um, I think that when you look at this, and you met, somebody mentioned Kroger earlier, and of course they have a big, big deal. Uh, Walmart, um, you know, every time that one of these companies has a, has a, a recall because of some salmonella issue or whatever, um, the heightened interests by the broad population is to assure more and more and more um, security in and around the way in which they acquire food. Um, and I think, again, that's, uh, that's a developing area. We've seen it happening over time. Uh, it's become part of the ESG investing community um, as people begin to recognize uh, how they wanna, be, they wanna be safe and secure. Um, so some of these things uh, I think are building up. Um, they, are, they are being um, promoted you know, through all kinds of uh, fear-based uh, news, news reporting whether or not that's good or bad or whatever, but it is, it is there. And of course, uh, fear drives an awful lot of um, investment opportunity. But again, I think you know, food safety and food related activities are a, are a, a large uh, multinational interest and it, it potentially could lead to a very, very large um, um, opportunities. You know, again, going back to the TAMs are very, very, very big. Yeah, absolutely, and was- international in nature too. Kelvin? Yeah, I think I would like to add on the part about fintech as well, because um, if you guys are aware, I think the next few weeks, uh, N Finance, right, is going to go for IPO as well. Um, Alibaba's uh, payment arm as well. And you look at WeChat, uh, these are all like super platforms that have embedded, I mean, they are their own processor, they are their own gateway as well. I think it's very, very interesting. Um, another area that I'm looking at uh, specifically regarding uh, fintech as well. Um, I believe are e-wallets, right? Because at the end of the day, when you try to build an e-wallet, I guess it's very, very competitive. Like, how are you going to acquire your costs, right? And some e-wallets, they go bust because they just couldn't compete on the marketing front, right? How do you acquire customers at, at a low cost? And today, I think a lot of platforms start, started to realize that, hey, since I'm actually doing um, e-commerce, I'm actually acquiring my customers as well. Why don't I offer my own uh, payment solutions? And guess what? At the back end, I still do believe that they need a processor, right? If you look at Shopify, um, they they are still not their own processor yet. I still believe they are using Stripe or something like that. And um, again, if you look at Stripe, the way it's being uh, architect, right? Uh, um, built from ground up, it's actually a highly programmable um, uh, uh, um, kind of uh, coding, right? So you have a lot of easy APIs that, that can connect with a lot of different um, uh, use cases. So which is why I think it's very interesting. And I think over time, when we talk about e-wallets, I do think that over time, it will become a normal infrastructure and a utility of a consumer uh, spending habits. And I think over time, e-wallets will converge to either one or two players because at the end of the day, if you really look at the apps that you have on your phone, um, maybe in, in, in Asia case, right? We have Lazada, we have Shopee, but do I really need two apps, right? At the end of the day, do I want to deal with two apps? At the end of the day, I will converge. So I do feel that um, the industry is really, really big, but at the end of the day, people are still converge with one. Because if you look at uh, Square, right? I think the cash app grew actually much faster than PayPal's offering. I think it's Venmo, right? But correct me if I'm not uh, wrong, because I, I think cash is actually growing faster. And I think eventually, uh, consumers just prefer that, that convenience. So it's either one or two player remaining and the rest will just die off naturally. I have a, I have a question I wanted to pose to all of you in, in regards to... Tam and, and looking at sectors and industries that, you know, because what I've loved so far about our panel is that we're really talking about a lot of sectors and industries that not necessarily fully matured, but are maturing at a 
pace that's very quick and 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 going global at a, at a much faster pace um, than I think any of us could possibly compute. You know, which which is which is I think where the true value lies. But a lot of problems that I see, you know, in the fintech community, and a lot of investors might get caught in the trap of, hey, this industry is coming, or this market is this is going to be a mate. This is going to be huge. This is what's going to now completely take over an existing industry or be a new industry. You know, like uh, I, I mean, so. What are some of the things that you're seeing on that front that maybe investors should maybe be a little bit wary of saying, hey, this looks interesting. This might, there's already a quote unquote established market, but maybe they're too early right now, or you might want to wait for it to mature a little bit more. Uh, I think that, you know, you go back to what Stephen said earlier about platform. Um, I think in the value, because what you're asking, what you're asking is, is uh, how do VCs find the right the right players? Okay, early early on, um, it's because, in my opinion, it's because they have more data um, on cultural trends, um, broad trends, um, things that are things that are out there that are uh, unexposed to most people, um, but they're actually doing their due diligence to see where the where the uh, strategic trends lie. Uh, and again, going back to what we talked about already, and I, I do think that. Um, most investors don't have that potential. Uh, they can't. They can't buy a report from um, um, Gartner, or or they can't hire McKinsey to do something to tell them what's going on. Um, I think when you get right down to it, you know, you you have to go back and look at um, how do you find the early the early differentiators that will create a trend, rather than looking for the trend. Because if you're looking for the trend, you're already too late, in my opinion. Okay, Good so uh, that's, I said earlier that you know platforms, integrations, systems, things of that type are what I look for when um, gauging your question. Okay, I mean, when I'm when I'm investing, most of those most of those decisions about strategy have already been uh, incorporated in the business plan. So I'm getting there late, I think. Um, so again, I mean, maybe there's maybe there are ways that um, I don't know how the private investor or the singular investor or even some of the family office guys can indeed um, go well upstream to get to the point where they see the germ, they see the idea, and they recognize that that's the best thing since sliced bread. Okay, and get in very, very, very early. And um, and what yeah. I, I think it's, I think you're asking a very, very difficult question, Bobby. I think it's a uh, very hard thing to to get get ahead of. Yeah, I th I throw screwballs every once in a while, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that, so I'm not even going to attempt it. But I just wanted to mention, uh, you know, to Kev to Kevin's point. Uh, look, fundamentally, the demographics in different uh, countries and different potential markets are something that I would look at, and and I know Kelvin's with his interest in C, which I actually own a, a tiny amount as well, and probably will for a long, long time. Why not? because uh, it, it's, its reinvestment opportunities are massive. And, but you look at the demographics for, let's just say something like online gaming, right? We're heading in the right direction. And when you look at certain countries in Asia specifically, that just the average age in that country is lower. Um, you know, here, when you look at say Europe, 
and the reproduction rate is below replacement value, and they're not very strong on immigration, uh, on allowing you know immigrants in. Uh, the place where you want to invest over the next 20, 30, 40 years is a growing population uh, and a, a younger age on average. And that's a country like, you know, like in Indonesia uh, or something along those lines and other countries in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, Kelvin's more the expert here on, in that area, of course, but uh, there are some specific companies here that we in the U.S. can have access to and sees one of them. There's a guy who's been writing about demographics forever. Um... I'm trying to figure the name out, Harry something or Henry something. Uh, he writes books on, on demographics and it's exactly what's been writing over the last 20 years is the, for example, one of the, let's pick Vietnam just as an example. Um, yep. The population after the war was decimated and now they are probably one of those areas that you mentioned, Indonesia is the same thing, um, where the population is very, very young. Um, they're very well connected. I mean, they're international in many, many cases. So yes, indeed, I agree with you on that, that the demographics are, are difficult. On the same hand, is that the demographics of Japan, for example, is getting, I don't know what the average age is, but let's sit down and say it's 48 versus 24 in, in Indonesia. Um, the markets are different. You're going after healthcare. Um, you're going after different, different markets uh, where, the TAM is, where the TAM is based upon demographics of being older. Um, so I think when you, and I, and I agree with demographics, I, I, I've been reading this, this guy, I have to go find out who the hell it is. I'll get back at you later on it. Um, uh, but I, 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 I fully agree that demographics, if you look at it, if you're looking for early trending activities, that's the place to start. Yeah, I mean, to, to what I understand, I mean, if you look at there's this always the five stages of technology adoption, right? And I kind of think also product ad adoption as well. Your innovators, your early adopters, early majority, and I think towards the end is your... You know, I think late majority, right? And and I, I do remember reading a book, it's called uh, Cross, uh, Crossing the Chasm, right? It's like this tipping point where now this thing gets fully adopted. Um, to be really honest, I, I do not have an exact answer to that, but I do think that maybe from the country where I'm living in, um, um, maybe if you look at Singapore government, right? I, or, or maybe if you look at any governments that are more forward thinking, right? I think the moment that a certain product I mean, I'm, I'm talking about software comp components. If it's being adopted by the government and government tends to have quite a long uh, selection process, they validate the product to see whether it's good or not. I think at the end of the day, if, if government starts to ad adopt all these certain technologies, uh, services, I, I do believe that, you know, um, um, you know, we can no longer say that this is just something that is hot for the moment, but it's something that will last and persist for a long time. And maybe I think, um, I, I do feel just being observant around you, you know, like just trying to see what people are consuming, um, you know, what are they talking about as well? And I think uh, one point as well is, uh, I think something very easy, uh, it's, it's something that's so simple that I think we tend to neglect it and we tend to um, say that, uh, we tend to like ignore these tools, right? Like we can use alternate data like a Google Trends. I think that's one of it, uh, use a social blade, you can see the uh, website rankings. And I do feel that right now, um, who are actually the early adopters of this era? I always believe it's the, it's the young ones, right? So uh, where do the young people actually um, spend their time on, like TikTok, right? So I think on TikTok, there are some websites that actually track the kind of content, the hashtags as well on Instagram. So these are like hacks that you can do that's so simple, but sometimes we tend to forget about it. Kevin, do you have a TikTok? 
Uh, yes, but it's embarrassing. I, I, don't oh, I know you do. <laughs> yeah, what do you post what, up, Kevin? Are you Kelvin? kidding me? Look how it, it, oh, look no on Kevin, yes on Kelvin. Guys, I just it's, deleted guys, mine. It's for research. It's for research. By, by the way, uh, Stephen, the guy's name is Harry S. Dent. He's been writing yeah. about demographics forever, and the guy is either considered to be crazy or, or um, well, beyond, well beyond everybody else. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, so, I mean, to Kelvin, absolutely, uh, you know, I, I agree with you there. And, you know, I think going to that, to the point that Kevin mentioned too, is look, there is still niches in areas. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to look at TAM specifically, especially kind of geographically, then you want the largest, youngest growing demographic. Uh, that's not necessarily the best area to invest in though. <laughs> you know, that's a good, a good place to start looking for companies that have 101 bagger potential. That's Steve Keel uh, trademarked 101 bagger potential. Uh, but that's not necessarily the best way to have a lowest risk investment. And to Kevin's point about a company with declining demographics, probably, you know, aging population, uh, there, there could be an opportunity over the next, you know, three to five to 10 years that a particular player could come in, whether it's healthcare or you know nursing homes or something like that could address that market, that it just would not attract as much competition because the venture capital doesn't wanna get into it because it has a five or 10 year lifespan, right? And those could be some great investment opportunities because there could be massive cash flow, limited competition, even though the TAM you know, might be uh, high for a, a short amount of time, but isn't high over the next 20 years, but it might be high over the next 10 years. That's a great place. Let, to me, let me just jump in and offer a, 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 an interesting perspective on demographics. Um, I'm in a certain demographic, as you can tell. And one of the areas that is of particular interest to me is prostate uh, cures, okay? Don't laugh, it's there. Everybody's ultimately gonna to have to deal with it, right? I mean, I don't give a shit right now about you young guys, but us old guys have to be very, very considered about what's going on. And it's, I forget what the numbers are. 40, 50% of men are gonna be subjected to some sort of prostate issues. So again, when we're looking at demographics, and I agree, I agree entirely that uh, Kelvin said that uh, young people drive particular markets and you know, new innovation and things of that type. But other demographics actually do drive uh, op op opportunities and things of that type. I mean, again, um, the, the funny thing, I, I did some research on breast cancer and, and I want to see how, how broadly it was distributed among women and whether or not it was decided um, <clears throat> to decline after a particular age. I found some great data um, and it was very, very informative. But one of the things that was more informative was it showed the rate of breast cancer um, you know, globally. And there was a, there was a a, a much bigger curve above it. It was it was like this and that, you know. It's like and it was prostate, and so to some extent, uh, it's the unknown, uh, unspoken um, area of healthcare because guys just don't even want to talk about it. Um, however, it's there. So anybody who comes up with a with a healthcare cure or healthcare um, therapeutic for prostate is also going to be in a great demographic. So again, I don't think we should be isolating. Um, opportunity to one group or another. They just all offer uh, opportunity. And again, I think that prostate is something that is indeed um, not just subject to US, it is global. And again, most, most cancers are. So you know, anybody who's chasing those opportunities, I think has, a, has a, uh, an interesting TAM available to them you know, based upon the demographic. That's true. And how are you gonna make that payment 
right? You've got several payments. So if you're getting treatment for say prostate cancer or something in India, right? You're going to pay the doctor. You're going to pay the insurance. Oh, I'll be free. Parking. I'll be free. And you got five different transactions there for one treat. <laughs> Steven, Steven, Kevin's going to pay by cash. <laughs> I have it in my wallet. I have, a, I have it right here. Watch it. He's got his e-wallet. No, hold on. He's going to use his e-wallet to make the four or five transactions for the... <laughs> Kevin's paying with Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I own a lot of it. Yeah, right next to gold. Yeah, bring <laughs> in the block of gold and then like chip a piece off for it and you pay, <laughs> pay with it. Yeah, is there a Stripe solution for paying in physical gold? I mean, come on, let's go. You know, they're missing a huge market there. Hey, they'll come up with something. Those guys are smart. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So I want to close, I, I want to close out this panel with a, you know, a, a you know, the second part of this question, because I don't want to spend too much time on it, because I feel like most of these sectors and industries are going to be mostly obvious, you know, so, you know, for each of you, you know, what, what's one sector or industry that you're either avoiding, or you noticed is suffering right now, and you're just, it's really tough to see, you know, the roadmap for them getting back to where maybe they used to be. Well, I avoid what I don't know. I avoid mining and exploration, and I, I also avoid drugs because it's a binary coin flip on any sort of investment. So that's just the general direction. Um, I think there is opportunity uh, in many, many cases where I do think the restaurants are going to come back. I do think that gaming is going to come back, in-person gaming. I think that there are many, many things that uh, people culturally will still you know, desire. And again, you know, that's probably talk, talking from my, my, uh, my demographic location. But again, it's one of those things where I, I think that many, much of this is going to be temporary. Now, and I think that some of it's going to be permanent. You know, will, will, uh, will, do you want to invest in REITs, for example? That's a big crapshoot as far as I'm concerned. Okay. You don't know what the population is going to be doing or what companies are going to be doing. Um, so again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's kind of funny. The, the word uncertainty was, I think, the word that started in number one from the very, very, very beginning of all these conversations. And it's still there. It's still highly present and highly influencing the, the nature of short-term decision-making. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think that, I think that long-term decision-making is probably the thing that I kind of trying to see if I can understand better. I would argue even in healthy markets, uncertainty is definitely going to be that invisible cloak around all of every one of these conversations. Because if we were all certain about whatever it is out there, I think we, I think we'd have a, we have all of our own islands right now, right? I mean, so, so, uh, Stephen, what, what are your thoughts on the topic? Yeah, I mean, I think when you you have to look at industries here that will have long-term structural changes based on what's occurred here in the last six months with COVID, because. These short-term ramifications, you know, we, we talked earlier, there are some companies that will be able to grow and thrive and benefit. Uh, but then on, on an entire different spectrum, there are companies that were kind of heavily indebted and uh, their demand decreased. Uh, they're maybe in person, you know, did not have a, a capability kind of online that were crushed in the short term and will also potentially be crushed, not just a cyclical, but a structural negative change. And I think when you look at some of these retailers, uh, we've had some bankruptcies primarily because of debt, primarily because of, of uh, high rent expenses and uh, that don't have an online presence 
that, you know, it's like, can these, some of these brands even come back? Uh, well, you know, some of them obviously already declared bankruptcy. There's going to be a whole nother mess of them on the table in the next year. And that's an area that I would really, really want to be careful about because you just, you know, again, TAM is smaller and decreasing the demographics of some of these old time brands that have not progressed uh, are, are not in our favor also. And then some of them that are heavy in certain areas where the population has been leaving. And I'm thinking about New York specifically, uh, it's, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be tough. And there's always little nuggets and winners and niches in here. But if you're looking at an industry where there's going to be a higher percentage of potential winners, you know, I would stay away from brick and mortar retail. Yeah, so, yeah. I um, I was just thinking along the same lines, uh, Stephen. Really, I think um, because I have witnessed it um in Singapore as well. Like, if you look at department stores, I mean, the value add is really nothing but just giving a one stop shop for all the different brands, and they do rid uh, ridiculous markups, right? So if those brands, you know, can buy it online, and at the end of the day, if you as a consumer, it's all about seeking that value proposition. Uh, proposition. When it's not there, then then where do you go? You go online, right? So. I, I haven't really gave a deep thought about like what are industries that I would avoid, but I just generally avoid uh, industries that when you have a lot of aggressive players inside, you know, trying to get a piece of your business and, um, and when it's so, I mean, competition is good, right? But when you have too much competition, you know, you just think about how can you win in that, in that industry. You just, I mean, at the end of the day, um, competition is, is good to extend, but at the end of the day, uh, if you can't capture the profits, right, that you for the value that you deliver, then that's going to be quite painful. I, I mean, one of the examples, um, of course, is like what Warren Buffett said, right? You know, in the past, I think in US, there's a lot of airlines are competing among each other, and they start to consolidate and they start competing lesser. Um, so, so that's that's the things I look at. But maybe just another um perspective, which could be a bit extreme, um, but maybe a few years down from now, then I will start to evaluate whether this is really extreme. It's really I think in any businesses that I buy today, I would really try to avoid businesses that are selling a physical product, right? Um, so you look at, I mean, let's talk about finance again, right? Um, contactless payments, um, it's all, all digital. You talk about e-commerce as well. They're delivering a, a digital services. Not only in, in a capital efficiency basis, right? It's, it's lighter. The reinvestment rates is, is way higher. I believe uh, that's the way uh, things are going to progress. And I think... Um, with COVID-19, um, a lot of players have started to innovate, started to innovate a lot to see whether what are the kind of solutions that can deliver digitally. And I think one of it is really about uh, signatures, right? Last time you just pay someone to deliver documents uh, right across New York or whatever, but now you can use DocuSign, right? So I feel that uh, digital payments have created tremendous uh, value add that it's really hard to just go back. So there are some industries that are permanently being disrupted um, because of uh, newer solutions that we see today. Very good. Um, any final thoughts on on this topic? I mean, you know, the as I said at the beginning, this is something that we could probably go on forever and and start going down little rabbit holes of. Uh, I mean, you know, I I got so many notes down here. Of, you know, I I figured a great way to end this is maybe talk about is maybe just kind of give. Our, our overall criteria when it comes to then looking at some of these sectors and industries that be uniquely positioned to 
to have that high TAM, ability to grow revenues, GPM and OPM. You know, some of the things that have been brought up is that companies or industries that are able to be global, um, companies and industries that are able to help boost productivity, um, you know, uh, stuff that what, what, what Stephen was saying is, is, and this isn't necessarily a trend or a theme, but just consumer staples in general, you know, that that's just always something that will be there. Something that Kevin also said is software, anything, sectors and industries that are able to um, uh, just take what they do and create some sort of extra productivity solution, <laughs> whether it's a brick and mortar or, or whatever that they're doing, um, taking advantage of computerized model or, or computing power. Um, I think that, I think that, and then of course, systems rather than, than the parts, integration packaged into a system. You know, I think these are some great themes that as an investor, if you're listening to this and you want to look at different sectors and industries, you know, it'd be great if there was companies out there, sectors and industries that hit every one of these boxes, you know, but I, I would argue if they hit a few of these, you know, that might also be a good place to start if you're looking, you know, for the longer term. So any final takes on anything that I just said that you want to add to that? Yeah, the, the only thing I would say there is, you know, look, we're coming from the perspective as an investor. And so if there is a industry, an industry with a very large TAM, but also it attracts a ton of competition and innovative competition, that's a tough place to be as an investor. I'm looking for monopolies, duopolies, olig oligopolies, <laughs> where there's two or three maybe major players and, and you know they're going to be around. You need that predictability over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think that's the place to have to, to really look at as an investor with all of those TAM-related, uh, you know, high TAM-related items that you just referenced, but also for some reason, there can only be three participants. I'd love to be in that area. And that's what I look for it as an investor. I also forgot to mention, uh, you know, we had a big conversation about demographics. You know, it's a great place to look at, you know, places with growing population and uh, I guess you, an average population age that's on the relatively young side. We all can have different definitions of what that means, of course. But um, but I, I, I think that was a great point that we brought up as well. So Kevin, Kelvin? Yeah, let me yeah. just say that, um, you know, you can go through all of this um, quant type of stuff and trying to determine how you want to evaluate a company and what are the important things and what are the numbers that you want to be able to be looking at and where do you want this thing to go in the future? But one of the things that's really most interesting to me is, is that one has to do a lot of self-evaluation to find out <clears throat> what the investor's emotion is like. Why, would he, why, why are you going to choose this? Is, is your, are your criteria correct? Okay, and I would argue that your criteria are somewhat correct, but they're somewhat wrong too. Um, you don't have enough information, and so you're making a lot of, a lot of personal decisions based upon some emotion um, that you cannot quantify. And I think that's that's kind of one of those lost pieces of um, of um, of investing that some pe people really need to kind of evaluate. I mean, again, it's as I said, I know what I don't want to invest in. Um, Will my emotions impact what I will invest in? That's the other part. That's a, that's another discussion. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's really simple. Um, <clears throat> I still remember uh, reading a book by Peter Thier. So I think he's a co-founder of uh, PayPal together with Elon Musk. He wrote a book called Zero to One. And if I still get it right, it says that 
the most valuable businesses of the coming decades will be built by entrepreneurs who seek to empower people rather than to make them obsolete, right? So again, I think this point is so relevant because at the end of the day, if you are trying to compete and just kill everyone out, then at the end of the day, um, the war is going to be very, very long, right? But anyway, still talking about the picks and shovels, right? Um, again, I think um, why I like um, fintech a lot, I like um, software a lot, is that they empower businesses, right? And how many businesses are there in the world? They empower consumers to live their lives better. So I always think about products and services that will empower uh, businesses or people rather than just competing with them head on. So I, I guess to that point, I mean, since we are always talking about fintech, um, I think uh, Stripe is actually an empowerment tool. Um, um, the reason why I think Stripe is great because I actually host certain um, content on Teachable, right? And when I want to have payment processing um, flexibility, it's very tough. But if you use Stripe, you could code it in your own way. Um, would that be better? Would that be a better solution for a lot of business owners? Would, would, would they want this solution? Of course, yes, right? So at the end of the day, um, buy into businesses that empower other people instead of competing with them. And I think that's also the same strategy that um, Microsoft is using right now. They are partnering with people instead of competing and killing them off. I think that's a great way to end it. That is, that's a perfect, that's a perfect bow. I love that. All right, Keldon, uh, where can my audience, where can our audience, whoever's listening, watching, who, where can they go and find more information about you? Well, um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Slingshot Cat. At, at Slingshot Cat. Yeah. yeah, that's all. <laughs> there you go. All right. And uh, Kevin. I have to one mute, sorry. Oh, no, I, I actually can't be found. Uh, I hide uh, just to make sure that uh, I don't get too much exposure. But um, as you've said, Bobby, I have uh, my presence is in Twitter where my account is the good prick. And what I do is, is that I don't post much. But when I do, it's mostly skeptical because my attitude is get it right, you know, and, and just look, come on, you know, it's a, it's, I don't know, it's just stay focused. I like that. Well, look, for those who don't know, also Kevin is an, an, a very talented photographer as well. So we're all hoping that he, he starts his own Instagram soon. That's next. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get him on an Instagram and, and posting his photos as well. Because you, you don't want to name your Instagram account the good prick, though, and post photos. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't do that. I'm so, well, I'm, so well, I'm so well spread across social media that everybody knows me, of course. Hey, thanks for that, Bobby, too, by the way. Thank you. Oh, of course. I love your photos. All right. And uh, Stephen, where can uh, everybody go and follow you? Yeah, well, I mean, just to, to put a capstone on Kevin's uh, Twitter account, The Good Prick, last time I looked at it, I think I had 288 followers. Uh, it clearly, clearly demands at least twice that. <laughs> So, so true. Just so, just so that at, at, at a at a stand up dining dining group party or a beer a beer bash, you can sit down and say, "Well, one of the guys that I follow in the thing is the good prick," and of yeah. course, that's going to get a few jokes. And <laughs> so it originated I mean, it, it the whole thing originated at an at a microcap club beer beer bash, where the whole conversation was just about you know being a being skeptical and offering a good. 
prick perspective, you know? <laughs> what are you That's doing good. that for? You can know? we get them to 300? Just can we get a 12 followers? Yeah, let's get, let's, yeah, we're, yeah, like just 12. Let's get to 300. And then we'll get I, to, I think, and then we'll get to 350. And then we'll get to four. And then we'll, like, you know, slow we'll, down, slow down. The Tam, the Tam on Kevin's <laughs> Twitter account is. <laughs> relatively I, low i wouldn't I want think, to invest in it but it's, it's bad I, I, I think we need a challenge a challenge if we hit 500 by year end he has to create a tiktok account and instagram oh. that has some perfect perfect. oh a That's challenge a i like I would, that i'll think one up okay so kevin here's the thing and then I'll, I'll give my information and we can step off here but here's here's the challenge just for any listener here if we could give him a sympathy follow he's at 288 right now if we can get him to 500 by Let's give it uh, December one. So he's got a, a you know two months here. Uh, yep. It's a five hundred from two eighty eight. Kevin agrees to create a TikTok channel, and uh, Kelvin and I get to suggest a song for Kevin to dance to. Awesome. That he will then have to post on his Twitter account. Which he has to post. <laughs> Both on TikTok, Twitter, and potentially at that point, I mean, Kevin's going to go worldwide and have the Instagram account too. And we'll help. Like, don't man, worry. Like, am I going to be on? Am I going to be on a karaoke machine too? No, no, no. We'll show you. Don't worry, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Kelvin and I will give you a couple examples, right. but uh, it might be a little bit different than you're expecting. I'd say that. But uh, you know, th this is the thing. Kevin now is going to be hoping that TikTok gets banned. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Not no, I, I, I'm looking forward to this. 288 follows the good, uh, the good prick. Let's get him up to 500 uh, by December 1st, or whenever date it hits 500. That's when that's when this this has to go through. Kevin is agreeing to this deal right now because he loves gambling. He loves uh, he loves that kind of thing. So he's he's agreeing to this, and Kelvin and I get to suggest a song. I've got a couple in mind since uh, I, I joined I'm, TikTok in the beginning I'm, of COVID as well. I'm thinking at the beginning of the that when that happens, at the beginning of the following episode of the Investors Roundtable, we'll broadcast the video absolutely. too as well. We'll make sure that that gets on there. Absolutely, like absolutely. That. All right, hundred percent supporting that. I'm I'm very very confident that I can get to 500, singularly with Stephen's support. If Stephen just posts on his Twitter account, you know, just the idea that this is important to Kevin because otherwise, you know, he could pass on without knowing how many people think he's very, very interesting. <laughs> you're making assumptions there, though, that your followers are going to think you're interesting. <laughs> I have nothing to write anyway. No, you're, there's a lot of good, good stuff on there. I recommended follow for sure. And uh, you know, love, love Kevin. Uh, love the idea of him dancing to a Megan Thee Stallion song for those who, who know. <laughs> All right. You can find me at, uh, on Twitter, uh, Stephen underscore Keel. It's K I E L. Uh, you can also find me at arquitos.com, my, my uh, fund and uh, willowoakfunds.com as well. And uh, I'll be pumping uh, Kevin's account here for the next few weeks. So uh, oh, yeah. apologies to my followers for that. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to the next one. All right. Thanks, Thanks Bobby. Guys. See you guys.